So it, in this podcast, we have Josephine, Melinda, Lily, and the parrot. <laughs> and his name is Bird Bird. That was given oh. by my daughter, a real original name when she was four years old, named him Bird Bird. I Aww. love that. Well, welcome to this podcast, Bird yes. Bird. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> We're not going to be able to edit that one out. Hey there. My name is Lily, and you're listening to Mindful Admissions, a podcast by Strive to Learn. This episode of Mindful Admissions is probably one of the most important that we've recorded this entire season. I'm kind of biased because this episode is about supporting students in the college application process, and I just recently was a student in the college application process who needed support. It's a hard balance for parents to strike, wanting to help their students succeed, but trying to empower them to do it on their own. Josephine has had nearly a decade of experience and has watched hundreds of families navigate this very situation. Belinda, as a college counselor, admissions officer, and a parent, has seen all sides of the college application process, and I have none of that wisdom, only a microphone and a lot of questions. So this should be fun. I think that about covers it. Let's go to me from the past, talking to Josephine and Melinda. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for being here today. And, and thanks to everyone who is with us now or listening in later on the podcast. We really appreciate you putting your trust uh, in us when it comes to college counseling. And I'm excited to get started. So we're here to talk about how parents can support their students in college applications season. And more than just in a, in a financial aspect, we're talking about sort of a holistic, emotional and academic understanding of a student's life, um, as well as the actual mechanics of filling out college applications. So before we get started, um, I just wanted to make sure that everyone gets introduced to both of you. So Melinda and Josephine, would you mind introducing yourselves um, and maybe telling me why you feel this topic, supporting students as they create their college applications, is so important? Hi, I'm Josephine Borman. I'm the founder of Strive to Learn, um, and I've been a tutor um, for multiple subjects. I've been a test prep tutor as well, and I've been a college counselor for um, about a decade. Um, and so I have worked with a lot of different students in a lot of different parts of their journeys. Um, and, you know, some are college bound, some are not, but everyone is adulthood bound. Um, and it's really exciting to be able to mentor our students through kind of that growing up phase where they feel like there's a lot of pressures on them from all different sides um, and a lot of pressure on them from their own side. And so mm -hmm. I chat with parents all the time about how they can better support their teens. Um, some parents, you know, really want their teens to do something the teen doesn't want to do. Other parents, it's kind of the opposite way around. They see their teen kind of working themselves to the bone and they want to make sure their teen has more balance in life. So um, I think it's really tough being a parent um, around this time uh, in this age because you see your, you know, you see your baby grow up. <laughs> They're becoming adults. <laughs> it's hard to let go. Um, and, you know, you got to learn how to let go, but also how to support and how to find a really good balance between the two to allow your yeah. child to really um, grow and and you know, make some mistakes and learn from them um, and become a confident adult. So I think um, this is relevant really for anyone who has kids who are teens. I'm Melinda Blackman. I am one of the college counselors at Strive to Learn. Um, I'm also a professor of psychology and I've also been admissions director of a master's program for many years. So I've sat on uh, both sides of the situation. I also have uh, two children in college and uh, that was a, a interesting experience going through and supporting <laughs> them while they were uh, 
developing their applications and developing their personal statements, not only as a mother, but also as a college counselor, you, you know, wonder, uh, you know, how much support, you know, to give. Um, so I want to share my uh, experiences of what I did that worked and what I did that didn't work. And I will be sharing that during this podcast. I don't want to derail this, Lily. I'm sure you have a lot of questions, but I just had a question pop in my head for Melinda. Is it okay if I kind of hop Absolutely. in? Absolutely. Yeah, no. Okay. okay, go ahead. I just thought it was so interesting what you just mentioned that you helped your children, both your daughter and your son, um, through this process while you were both a mother and a college counselor. Yeah. And absolutely. so my question is, what is the difference in roles between a mother and a college counselor when it comes to providing advice to a teen? Ah, oh, that is a good question. Um, as a mother, there's that sense that you just want to go in and fix everything and um, hound them about the deadlines. And uh, whereas a college counselor, you want to enable them to be an advocate for themselves and empower them. So there was that mothering instinct where you want to help your child and do everything possible. And then I know as my role as college counselor, you want to empower them and um, help them fly and uh, develop their self-advocating skills. So finding a balance between the two was, was difficult with my first, uh, with my daughter, she's a little bit older than my son. Um, that was a lot of trial and error. And I, aired on the side of too much nurturing and wanting to jump in there. And with my son, I think I'm more of the college counselor where I'm empowering him. So mm -hmm. it, it took <laughs> two, <laughs> I think I've nailed it with uh, going through with my son um, college application <laughs> process. I'm tempted to say that's why you have more than one kid, but it's there not we really, go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Lily would know she's the older one. So she's the trial hey. run. Yeah. I'm the guinea pig for everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I totally understand. Absolutely. You mentioned self-advocacy, which I think is a great term and something that we definitely should talk about. Why is self-advocacy such an important skill to learn, especially like at this age? To anyone that was to the room. <laughs> Sorry. You go ahead, Melinda. You're okay, sure. <laughs> uh, definitely. Because um, in college, it, it, you don't have your parents there for the support. And you have to learn to um, go ahead and get the classes that you want. If there's an issue with your financial aid, you are the one. Unless you give your parents special permission to intervene. But it's all on your shoulders. And it's mm -hmm. best to start learning to self-advocate and have that sense of um, efficacy that, yeah, I can do it. I can make a difference or yeah. I can uh, do this on my own. Um, so it's better to start early. And that's what we do here at Strive to Learn is through the application process, we're empowering our students to uh, take a large portion of it on their shoulders, but we're there supporting them and guiding them the whole yeah. way. Yeah. I also have kind of 
my personal perspective on that kind of, you know, I'm always bringing in the, the cultural perspective because I can't help but be born and raised in Germany. Um, and so <laughs> my adolescence, I think, happened very differently from that of my students. Um, I think that the students that I have known have been a bit more sheltered. And of course, I'm speaking about a specific demographic here in Southern California, the, the students that come through Strive to Learn. That's not to generalize to, you know, everyone, but what I've seen is that, um, you know, parents really want to make sure that their kids aren't creating any hurdles for them for their future. So that, for example, if they want to go to college, that they get the grades that they need, uh, that they don't get, you know, suspended, <laughs> things yeah. like that, or in trouble mm -hmm. for anything that might be a roadblock to then be able to go to college. So I feel like the focus is very much on getting there, getting there, getting there. I'm going to do everything I can to help my kid get there. But then they get there. And they're like, whoa, now it's just like all on me, right? Yeah. Like that goes yeah. from learning how to do your laundry to, you know, being <laughs> 2 a.m. and you you have no food, but you're hungry, but can't, you know, don't have enough money to get an Uber or to get food, whatever. Um, all the way to coordinating your classes, understanding how to read a syllabus, um, knowing that you can, you know, go to the tutoring center for free help at your university, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Even making doctor's appointments. I mean, that's a really big thing. Once you turn 18, it's like, oh, I have to call the doctor by myself now. Right. <laughs> um, and so I think that, um, you know, for me, when I grew up, something that I'm really uh, grateful for that my parents did. Um, and, and again, I just think the culture is also very different. Um, is that, you know, I, I went and I studied abroad when I was 16. I was living on my own there. Um, I came back and I was more motivated for school. And of course, you know, I had a curfew or there were certain things I wasn't allowed to do. My parents were super strict. <laughs> but as long as I, you know, abided by their rules, I could really do what I wanted with my free time. And I could make the mistakes I wanted and I could have the wins I wanted. And that I think really taught me the independence I needed to be able to go and study abroad really across a continent and an ocean and a new culture, AKA here in the US. Um, and I don't think that would have been possible had my parents run my life for me instead of letting me run my life for myself, especially those last two to three years of high school. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is um, really the self-advocacy, it's not something that you get when you turn 18 or 19. It's not mm -hmm. something that's like, okay, you know, the right to vote, that's something you get when you turn a certain age. The right to drink, yeah. something you get when you turn a certain age. Self-advocacy is not something you get. It's a skill yeah. that you build over years and years and years. And so I see parents expecting their kids to know how to do certain things. And then I ask them, well, have you ever, you know, let them do that? And they're like, no. And it's like, well, you got to like bit by bit kind of lead them towards that self-advocacy and, you know, step back a little and just provide the scaffolding so that they can fill it in however they want. And you have to watch them make mistakes because that is mm -hmm. how you learn. That's how we all learn. So I always encourage parents to really think back about their own journey and how they learn things and what they struggled through and whether it was maybe in the end good to have some of those struggles, right? Because yeah. if we remove all the struggle for teenagers, they end up dropping out of college after their first semester. They have a lot yeah. higher rates of mental illness, um, anxiety, stress, depression, homesickness, et cetera, in college. So we're really setting them up for failure if we're not focused on self-advocacy, um, you know, starting as, as soon as 13, 14, 15. <laughs> like it's really important to bit by bit let go and really let them learn how to handle their own things.
Sure. And, and from the parent perspective, I guess the concern then is with a student who isn't necessarily outspoken about advocating for themselves, how can a parent push something like this positively, but not too much? Because that feels very oxymoronic. It's like you're pushing your child to self-advocate that how, how do I reconcile those two things? And um, I, I was talking about this a, a while ago with Melinda. Melinda, you introduced me to the psychological concept of reactance. It was very, it was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how that relates to this conversation. Sure. Um, reactance is basically, it, I call it the Romeo and Juliet uh, phenomenon. It's the psychological phenomenon. If you tell your child that um, you cannot you know, go out at nine o'clock to go see a movie, or you cannot hang out with a certain friend, it basically does the opposite. It draws them to want to be with that friend or to go see that movie, even if they were just lukewarm about wanting to see the movie in the first place. So that's a concept to really keep in mind uh, when you're working with your children and fostering a sense of um, efficacy and advocacy um, to uh, even though you want to say, don't do that, um, refrain from that a bit because it'll drive them uh, to that wanting to do exactly what you're saying, please don't do. So that's just a phenomenon to be aware of as we navigate and support our children through these processes. Sure, absolutely. And my my parents, uh, because they've heard me say it so much, would call that helicopter parenting. Yes. Um, <laughs> which I, we've talked about a lot in this household. Um, but I, it's definitely um, hard as a parent to think about over advocating for your child because it feels like, no, I can't protect this person too much. I can't help them too much. That's impossible. But it's not. <laughs> it happens. And there are some dangers associated with that for a student in the long term. Uh, I thought it was interesting how you phrased this, Lily, um, where you said, so how do you, how can you like push your kid to self-advocate without pushing them to do something, right? Right, that yeah. kind of that oxymoron. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess the way I think of it is, you know, seeing when you don't do anything, what does your kid want to do? What do they bring up, yeah. right? So for example, not saying you need to do volunteering, but instead saying, so I see you have a lot of free time. Colleges do care about you doing something in your free time. So I want you to pick, you know, one extracurricular, but you pick whatever you want. I want it to be something that you're actually excited about. So just figure something out and get it set up. I think that's a good way to still, you know, be able to like give some sense of direction, but not be pushing your kid into something where then, you know, you have that reactance or, or kids are just doing something to do it because they're supposed to be doing it. Um, yeah. Because I see that as a huge issue too, that a lot of students, um, you know, are doing stuff because either someone's telling them to do it, or oftentimes because they think they should be doing it, rather than thinking about what am I passionate about? Or what am I curious about? Like, what, what kind of YouTube videos do I always look up? Like, what, <laughs> you know, does it fascinate me the YouTube videos where you watch people like, um, you know, like, um, like do like esthetician stuff like pimples and all of that right <laughs> they're fascinating and so if you love that well maybe you could try to shadow an esthetician or take an esthetician class you know at um 
at a local community college or something like that. So, so really kind of leaving that openness for them to decide what they want to do, even if you're still providing a sense of direction and saying, Hey, look, you know, that's great. You can play video games all day, or you can do whatever all day, but I want you to add one other thing, or maybe even if you have something like that, you know, like maybe they want to go deeper into that passion with video games and, maybe internet a gaming company or something like that. That could be cool, right? Mm -hmm. um, so really kind of um, letting the student kind of take those steps and also just saying, go set it up, you know, go set it up. Yeah. Absolutely. And then asking, do you need my help? Sure. I think it's always good to ask that too. But um, I think Melinda, when we were chatting about this, you also mentioned uh, the idea of learned helplessness, right? Yes. Do yes. you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> another psychological term. Um, a lot of times when you feel like you've been, uh, you feel like you're not making a difference and you've, uh, they, kind of in psychology, it's when the animal kept getting a shock and there's no, anything he couldn't have the animals in a cage and kept getting a shock. And no matter where they moved in the cage, they'd still get the shock. So they finally realized why even bother to do anything? I'm still going to get shocked. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make our students have a sense of self-efficacy that what they do does make a difference. And if they learn that my parents are going to do everything for me, why bother? They'll kind of go into a, a mode of learned helplessness throughout their whole life. So they have to learn a sense of efficacy that what they do can make a difference. And we can help as parents foster that little by little um, starting and, in high school. And isn't there like um, a part of that experiment where um, then there is a door opened so the animal could leave that cage where they're getting shocked, but it yes. no longer knows how to leave the cage exactly. where it's getting shocked. It doesn't right. know how to do anything for itself and save itself because it's learned the help helplessness so that even it, when there is safety right there, yep, it can't go. Exactly. And that's the same with our kids. They learn that they're not capable of doing something. So then when they're asked to be capable, they're like, but I can't, even if you give me those tools, because I learned that I am not because everyone has always done everything for me. Spot on. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. There is kind of oh, is there a bird? Sorry, I, I just ask. thought I'd talk about it. Is <laughs> oh, there a yes. bird in the background? There is. There is a bird. It's a, a little a small parrot. <laughs> so if you hear that. So it, in this podcast, we have Josephine, Melinda, Lily, and the parrot. <laughs> and his name is Bird Bird. That was given oh. by my daughter, a real original name when she was four years old, named him Bird Bird. I love Aww. that. Well, welcome to this podcast, Bird yes. Bird. I love it. <laughs> We're not going to be able to edit that one out. So Aww. here we are with our honor honorable guest. <laughs> yes. Yep. Apologies to anyone who's driving. Please don't crash. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a bird. Um, so I, I just wanted to continue on for a second because there's this unspoken association for me in this conversation with um, students who have learning disabilities this is a very different conversation for parents of students with a learning disability um, because advocating for, for a neurodivergent or neuroatypical student for their entire life is, is such an extended experience for parents. And then having to step away or maybe trying to step away, letting 
a neurodivergent student advocate for themselves, that may feel even more extreme and scary than for a student with a, a parent with a neurotypical student. So how can parents of students with learning disabilities specifically um, cope with this process? I've worked with a lot of students who had either learning disabilities, um, such as dyslexia, dyscalculia, or who had ADHD um, or were on the autism spectrum. And what I have found and what I've also heard from um, executive functioning coaches, because there are, there are people who really help students with, uh, who, who are neurodiverse, um, learn those executive functioning skills that you're talking about right now. Um, they're called executive functioning coaches. Feel free to Google it. Um, there are some great professionals out there. Um, and so what I really learned from talking to colleagues who, who work in that realm and from working with my own students is that it is even more important to foster self-advocacy in these students. And there's a really big, compelling reason for that. The biggest reason, um, that's just a very tangible reason, is that in high school, you may have an individualized educational plan, so an IEP or a 504. Um, so something that where the high school gives you extra time, maybe quiet testing environment, things like that, that is given to you. That's, you know, you, 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 you as a student are part of those discussions, but they happen whether you ask for them or not, right? Mm -hmm. You will get them as, as long as you've had um, a psychoneurological assessment done. Now, when you go to college, nothing is going to happen automatically. There's usually something called a center for disability. It has a couple different names depending on which institution you're at. Um, but they are there to serve the students, but the students are adults. The students must go to the center and they must say, hey, I have a psychoneurological assessment. Here you go. Um, can you help me get special services set up? And in college, there are such wonderful accommodations, um, depending on which college you end up going to. And, um, you know, if you do struggle with a learning disability or ADHD or are on the spectrum, I really encourage you to look into specific programs like the SALT program at the University of Arizona um, and different programs like that, because these universities often have very specialized programs that allow for workshops to learn better executive functioning skills um, that allow for something like note takers, um, which is really great for students with ADHD. Um, sometimes they really lose focus if they're trying to take all these notes while also um, trying to pay attention and it all gets jumbled. And in the end, they end up with crappy notes and they don't remember what was talked about, right? Um, so you have someone else taking notes for you and that student doesn't know who you are and you don't know who they are so it's all completely anonymous you have a personalized counselor who whom you meet with every semester and during the semester to talk about how everything is going so you have this great great support system at your fingertips but you cannot access it if you don't ask for it and a parent cannot call and ask for it when you're in college you are an adult you're in college you're the student they will not they're, they're legally not allowed to talk to your parents about your educational history. It's simply not allowed to. Is that, Melinda, is that Title IX? Is that, I'm, I'm blanking on the right word. Um, oh, it's, it's under FERPA, right? It's mm -hmm. under the FERPA law. Um, and so it's even more important to really prepare your student how to ask for help. And I think that, you know, if you, if you don't know how to do your laundry, whatever, um, but if you know how to ask for help, I think that's really important instead of waiting for help to be given. I think that's maybe where we can draw this distinction of how can I really 
prepare my student learning disability or not um, to be able to be successful because we all fall down and we need to make mistakes, but asking for help can be really hard. And I've seen so many students, especially with with learning differences or with mental illness, have a lot of shame around asking for help. And you don't want that to happen when they're alone in college, isolated from their family, right? And maybe not finding their niche where they are. So knowing how to ask for help and going through with your student, what are the things that will be available to you in college and showing them where to find that, I think is really important. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I, I really learned from the EF coaches um, that I've heard from was, again, the idea of scaffolding, just little by little. So maybe you could even think of it, like if your child is 13 or 14, think of like, where do I want my child to be? What skill set do I want them to have by 18? And then think of how, how can you craft each year? What, what are your, it's just like goal setting for life, right? What are your goals for your child per year that will then lead you to that overarching goal in four years? And then within each year, maybe do it per quarter. And that way you hold yourself accountable for each little yeah. task, little thing that leads towards, you know, this bigger skill set that you want them to have by age 18. Um, you're going to focus on one each quarter. Um, and that can be something like, hey, from now on, you're going to do your own laundry, you know, and maybe you can also help me with mine once a week. Thank you. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so I think that's a really good thing to do as a parent to really think about where do you see your child, because otherwise it's going to creep up on you very quickly. So it's going to race up on you, maybe I should say. <laughs> and suddenly you're going to turn around, they're 18. And you're like, oh man, you know, I am not sure if they're ready because, um, you know, I don't know if I've really fostered this sense of knowing how to ask for help. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to add something that's kind of a new, uh, at the university level, they are developing at a lot of universities, what are called student success counselors. And these are um, uh, administrators that you reach out to. No, regardless of what your problem is, if it's food insecurity, if it's you were accidentally dropped from a course, or you have a learning disability, you email this person, and they will put you in touch with the right person. And it's just a wonderful uh, uh, role and a wonderful resource for students, because it's hard to know, you know, where to reach out to, to self advocate, and these student success counselors will point you in the right direction. So something just to tuck away when your child goes off to college. That's an amazing resource. And I think I really, it, we can't emphasize enough the idea of how important asking for help is. And sometimes I think asking for help is associated with students who feel like they can't get anything done. But to me, it also makes sense for students who are doing everything who are maybe doing a bit too much, <laughs> probably overwhelmed. I know there are parents out there who feel like their student is basically just working themselves to the bone. I think Josephine, you used that phrase earlier. Um, and maybe their main concern is that the student isn't being mindful of what they actually want to be doing, that they're not maintaining a type of balance that is necessary between college applications, school, life, et cetera. Um, so if a parent sees that their child is overworking themselves, what, what can a parent do to alleviate that? How can they encourage balance in their lives? I should throw these to a specific person instead of <laughs> just letting them sit. Maybe Josephine, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So we actually had that happen um, relatively recently. Um, 
And it was, it was actually quite a refreshing call that we got um, where the mom called in and she said, you know, do you have someone who can work with my daughter on college counseling, even though she is, um, she just recently finished freshman year, she's going to go into sophomore year, because I feel like she's only 15. She's studying so much. She's doing so many extracurriculars. Um, you know, I, she's, she's, I've seen her cry because her class is super hard and she's just, you know, she doesn't even need to be taking this class, but she wants to, cause she feels like she has to, to be competitive once college applications come around. And, and I just want to see my daughter smile and laugh and hang out with her friends and be 15. And yeah. I just thought it was so refreshing because that's not always the calls we get. And I think one of the most important things this mom said to me was she won't listen to her. She's like, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. I do know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, I, I have to do this. So mom feels like she's not being listened to. She's not getting through to her daughter, but mom also knows what's good for her daughter. Mom knows what is right for her. And she can see that daughter is headed on a trajectory towards um, an imbalance when it comes to mental health um, and achievement, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's where mentorship really comes in. Um, there's something a professional mentor can do um, in a way that they can get through to students that is different from what a parent can do. Um, and it is different from what a friend can do and what a teacher can do. Um, an example of professional mentorship would be people like us, um, college counselors, independent counselors um, who, you know, get hired by the family and then we work with the student. Um, and we're really there as a soundboard for the student. Um, and, you know, I think it's so important. And that's why I called it professional mentor, because it doesn't have to be a paid college counselor, right? That's what we do, but that's not um, what everyone has to do. Um, I certainly did not have one, but, you know, I always somehow had someone who was more accomplished than I, whom I respected for their accomplishments um, to chat with. And just kind of hearing from them what their reality was, what their path was, showed me a lot about what my path could be. And I think it helped me clarify because you get to observe someone. And again, it's not someone who's like telling you what to do because they think they know what's best. They're just sharing their story and having, you know, mentoring conversations with you. Um, and it's up to you to take it or leave it. So I think those are, are so wonderful. So even just shadowing someone in a profession that, um, you know, your child might be interested in could be a great opportunity for your kid. Um, and actually, um, Melinda knows a lot about this. Um, our, our local high school here, Newport Harbor um, High School, has a mentorship program that students can sign up for if they want to in their junior year. Um, and Melinda actually found Strife to Learn because one of her, she was a mentor or is a mentor at Newport, B, uh, Newport Harbor High School. And um, her student happened to be a test prep student with us. And so she told her about Melinda and Melinda ended up coming to us and becoming a college counselor years ago. But Melinda, do you want to maybe share a little bit about how your, your mentorships with your students, you know, at Strive, but also just outside of that have gone? And yeah. Yes. Uh, it is a wonderful program that the students go through and both my children, uh, my son and daughter went through their junior year and they match you up with someone in a career that you're interested in learning about. And you have some casual meetings. You have about four to five casual meetings with your mentor 
And it may be walking around a wildlife sanctuary or uh, grabbing some coffee. And you are required to ask them several questions to start the conversation off. And you do a write-up. So it really gets the dialogue going and you get to know this individual and share experiences. And then you will shadow them. Um, I had students come to my workplace at the university uh, where I also work. And um, you... You're a mentor, but you share, you kind of let down your hair and kind of share your real world experiences and that advice. And I think it really makes an impact on the students because you're candid uh, with them about your advice. And um, I've mentored, oh, I think maybe six students um, over the last six years. And um, they come back several years later and are still, I tell them, I will always be your mentor. If you ever need a advice, I'm always here. So they still come back and, you know, ask questions and I'll candidly, you know, tell them my experiences. And that goes a long way. That's, I, that is like foundational stuff for kind of lifelong feelings of confidence and, and direction. So that's an awesome program. (laughs) I can't, can't recommend that enough. Um, I kind of wanted to pivot because this is a a question that has been on my mind for, for a while now. Um, so both of you have pretty significant relationships to community colleges specifically, Josephine, you went to community college, Melinda, your son was in community college, I believe. Um, And part of the conversation that we're having is about how, where parents want their students to be, where they want them to um, end up or where they want them to succeed. Um, How can parents change their mindset regarding alternatives to a very traditional cookie cutter four-year college um, and really face some of the stigma around, first of all, community college, but also alternatives to college, other pathways, trade schools, et cetera. I find this more of a problem in the higher income bracket. And weirdly, with a lot of parents who actually went to community college themselves, um, who say, my kid is definitely going to four-year. Like, we don't even want to talk about community college as an option. Um, And what I find usually is that they have been able to be very successful with the way their education went and now have the financial means to put their children through a traditional four-year college. And so that's what they're going for because that's what they weren't able to do because finances held them back. Um, so they want to enable their children to do that. The other option um, or the other like parents in that route would be someone who has legacy and is very, very um, connected to their alma mater, um, really wanting their kid to go there. And so I guess, again, you know, this is like driving. At some point, you have to give your kid the wheel. They may not drive (laughs) the same way you do. You know, they may want to turn right and then left, even though you would have gone, you know, straight and then right. Uh, You're going to end up in the same spot. You know, you're going to take a different path to get there. Um, And so I think, you know, one of the things to consider when we're talking about community college is that there are, um, you know, some positives. You should have a reason to want to go to a community college and you should also have a reason to want to go to a four-year, right? So if you're really looking for a huge sense of community, you know, big sports, um, really 
um, that idea of making friends that will last you through four years, um, then maybe a four year is, is a great opportunity for you. But if you, for example, want to go to a really competitive UC, um, or you want to go to a university that is far outside of budget, then it might be a good idea to do the community college transfer pathway because you are saving yourself money and guess what? You're also making lifelong friends. Um, I went to community college and one of my best friends today, um, it, I always talk about her uh, all the time. Um, I hope she listens to this podcast because she knows who she is. Um, I met her in community college um, at Santa Monica College. And we, um, you know, just kind of hit it off. Uh, we were in an intro to film class together. And we would just do, you know, group work and stuff together. But then once the class ended, we're like, okay, let's hang out outside of class. And she is still one of my very, very closest friends. Um, and here we are 15 years later. I also have very close friends from the university I transferred to, Chapman University. So, you know, I think that's that's another thing to kind of think about. But I'm I'm just realizing I'm hijacking this conversation, making this about a community college conversation. So let me bring it back. Again, I think asking your, asking your child why, instead of saying, don't you think you should go to a four-year? Saying, so, you know, have you thought about whether you want to go to a four-year or a two-year? And then when they say mm-hmm. four-year or two-year, you say, okay, tell me a little bit about why. I'd love to know, you know, why. And so I think that's really important, letting your child steer a bit. Um, just as scary as in an actual automobile. <laughs> when they are learning how to drive. Just as scary, I'm sure. Um, My son, um, when he was a freshman in high school, told me he really wanted to enjoy high school. And um, he said that his plan was to attend a community college because he knew his he was just going to get average grades. Um, he was going to take challenging classes, but he wanted to um, enjoy high school and go to community college and then transfer to his dream college. And that was his goal. He knew that. And he said, I'm prepared, mom, when I go to community college, I, could, I can get top-notch grades. And that was his plan. And um, he did. And he just uh, transferred now his sophomore year to his dream school. And uh, it worked out just beautifully. And he had a wonderful time in high school. Um, I also think that the pandemic has made attending a community college, um, I don't know, more acceptable in a sense. Uh, a lot of my son's uh, students or friends who were away at other colleges um, on the East Coast came home and actually went to community college during that year. Their parents said instead of having to pay the big tuition bill, they came home. And now I'm seeing a lot more of his friends who maybe weren't happy at their four year coming back to their local community college, taking time to find a major, an area that suits them. So um, I'm thinking that the pandemic has really uh, done a lot of good PR for our local community colleges. And as a professor myself, I've listened to um, the professors that were teaching my son in community college and oh my goodness, top notch. I have to, my hat's off to them. Um, just outstanding education uh, at community colleges. Yep. Yeah. And for anyone who can't see us right now, you're missing Josephine giggling at me because <laughs> this has been my exact experience. I just spent uh, the 2020 through 2021 school year um, at a university, a four-year university uh, in the East, in the East coast and decided that it would be better for me, uh, academically, socially, financially, and emotionally (laughs) to be, 
uh, at a local community college. So I'm transferring to um, Santa Monica College, coincidentally, the same one that Josephine uh-huh. attended. Um, and for, uh, you know, almost exactly the reasons that that we're describing right now. So I do agree with you. I think that's a trend that's occurring, maybe not just this year, but I, I do think that that's very true. We have to say here, too, that like, you're, it's really funny, the parallel that your story is shaping up to be to mine, because I started <laughs> at a four year, right? Yeah. Not on the East Coast, but in the Midwest, then transferred to community college, SMC, and then transferred to a four year again. Right? <laughs> I still did it in four years. I still did it, uh, you know, um, and I learned so much at each institution. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about, you know, the majors I was studying in. So for me, it was just super enriching each time, honestly, um, because it was such a growth opportunity. And I love what Melinda said about the community college professors. Um, One thing that a lot of students and parents don't realize is that when you are hired as a professor at a community college, all you do is teach. When you're hired as a professor at a four-year university, oftentimes research is a really big part of your contract and you have to hit certain goals as well as teach. So some professors, you know, really love their research and they love having students help them with their research, but may not be as passionate about pedagogy, about teaching, about being in the classroom. You know, it can kind of be a hit or miss a situation because they're very passionate about their craft, but anyone applying to a community college job is very passionate about teaching because that's all they will be doing. They won't be compensated for doing research. They won't get these big research grants. And so that's so cool, right? I had I had some of the most passionate professors in community college, and the class sizes are small. When you go to UC um, or or you know or any big schools out there, um, you you might have you know 300, 400, 500 people in your lecture hall, and yes, you have recitations with TAs, but you don't get as much you know hands-on time with your professor. Um, while at a community college. It's going to be, you know, 20 to 40 students in your class, depending on which class you're taking. Um, And so one of the things I say the most is if you do decide to go to community college, treat it as you would a four year institution. Find a club, you know, meet some people, Um, take a full course load if you can handle it, which you probably can. Um, And, you know, use their tutoring, do all the things, spend time on campus, study in the library. Um, don't try to have a full-time job while you're also going to school full-time. Uh, you probably wouldn't at a four-year, so don't do it at a two-year. Um, and if you do those things, then, and work with the counselor there towards, you know, um, being able to transfer successfully, just like Melinda's son did, it will work out for you. And it's so much less stressful, so much less stressful. Melinda's son got into a university that has now, I think, a 13% acceptance rate. Um, I think it just dropped to that. Um, and, you know, would he have gotten in out of high school? Maybe, maybe not. A lot of students who had, you know, above a 4.0 GPA, uh, took all the APs, had stellar standardized test scores, did not get into this university. Um, and her son did in a much less stressful way. Because when you transfer, the acceptance rates look a lot nicer. <laughs> they are not as scary anymore. They and do. it's easier on, do. The, on the pocketbook for me. <laughs> yes. That's one of the upsides for sure. Yep. <laughs> um, so I, I, I hate the phrase devil's advocate <laughs> um, because I think that the people yeah, who you use are it, ours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> people just really want to stir up an argument. I'm not trying to create controversy. I'm just trying to have a discussion. But I wanted to ask if I could give you a scenario um, as an example. So 
say that a student from a religious family wants okay <laughs> you, just, you need a buzzer so that you can answer me just like yes yeah we should have a buzzer who answers faster uh-huh. we should okay okay next well, let's let's do that in the future let's have like a quick question thing at the end where we have to answer really fast future <laughs> podcast ideas guys <laughs> okay i love it i love it i'll write that down um okay scenario So say that a student from a religious family wants to apply to a non-religious school or vice versa. How can parents focus on supporting their student, even if perhaps they don't fully understand the child's choice? And Josephine buzzed first. (laughs) Hey, I didn't buzz. I was waiting for Melinda to buzz. Oh, I thought that was your initial buzz. Uh, Got it. Okay. Oh, I'll go. I was called on. I'll rise. I'll rise (laughs) to the challenge. Um, what was the question? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, okay. The question was, if your child wants to go to a non-religious school, even though you want your child to go to a religious school, how can yeah. you deal with that? Okay. Mm-hmm. So again, I would say, ask your child why. Why is that? I would also encourage your child to go visit colleges, visit you know some institutions that would have that religious aspect that you hope for for them to be able to continue pursuing their faith. And then also have an open mind and go visit the schools that your child is looking at that maybe don't fit what you Mm -hmm. originally wanted for them. And when you are doing these college visits, ask questions, ask how can students pursue their faith here, right? Ask your child, how are you dealing with your faith? You know, how, like, how will you want to engage with it? when you leave, regardless of which university you go to. And you might be surprised. Maybe your child says, hey, mom or dad, I really want to go to this university. And I know that it's not Christian or it's not um, Catholic or whatever, whatever you want it to be. But, you know, I already found... I'm just going to make this about Christian so that I don't have to go through all religions uh, in my hypothetical (laughs) example. So I'm just going to say Christian. Okay. And I'm going to say church that of course, you know, there are many other ways (laughs) to be religious. (laughs) Um, So, you know, but I already found a church and um, a really great community and faith that I want to join. That's, you know, just two blocks off campus. And I'm really excited about that. Um, so having that conversation about why and how, I think is very important because this is, I think, where Melinda's, um, theory of reactance, I mean, not, not Melinda's, right. But the one that she brought <laughs> right. up, yes. um, I don't wanna, um <laughs> just take the credit. We're going to get, we're going to uh, get sued. <laughs> right. Um, you know, where that comes in and just really also trying to understand where your child is in their journey of faith. Um, I think a lot of kids believe what their parents believe until a certain age, and then they have to figure out for themselves is that what they also believe is that their own version of faith or not. And I think it can be really scary as a parent, but I think it's also really necessary to let your child figure out what place and purpose faith has in their lives and how they want it to intermesh with their college and adult experience and just asking them about it. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything that Josephine said, especially the reactants. If you say, hey, no way that you can attend this particular college, you're just going to drive them to it even more, even if they were just lukewarm about it in the first place. If they feel their freedoms are being impinged upon, uh, then they will directly go towards that thing that you are limiting from them. So uh, something to keep in mind. Sure. Yeah. It it sounds like a lot of the 
potential pitfalls that we're that we're hitting upon can be uh, remedied through through good communication with your student, um, good communication techniques. And something that I wanted to ask you about um, is about communication regarding finances, because different families talk about finances differently. Um, and I, I know this from being around my friends and their families and talking about college and the cost of college and things like that. So, I mean, speaking about finances with your child could be difficult, um, but I want to bring up another scenario because I love my scenarios. Um, so for a student who perhaps applies to 10 colleges that they love, um, seemingly all good fit gets in, uh, and then discovers that the tuition rate is too much for their family to afford. That sounds like a very painful reality, perhaps applying to schools that let you in and then they run about 60 to 80 K a year with no aid. Um, but a family could only afford maybe 30 K a year. How can a family communicate in order to avoid this situation of where, where finances become a problem because they weren't addressed in the beginning? Are you pointing to me, Josephine? <laughs> I am. I am. Yes. I, am. <laughs> um, I, I run across this a lot as a college counselor where parents uh, don't want their children to know how much they make, or it may be uh, parents who are divorced uh, and there's lack of communication right there. And that makes it really difficult. So important before we build the college list or without a college counselor to have that conversation um, and be Oh, as transparent as you possibly can about what is comfortable for you as parents. So much better to have it at the beginning before the college list is developed than after. And uh, there was one situation in which I had uh, parents who were divorced and uh, they didn't want to communicate that information to me. We built the list and then uh, they came forth and, and uh, basically about three fourths of the colleges were out of their, uh, after we had applied, were out of their range. Uh, so definitely have that conversation before you start talking about which colleges uh, the student would like to apply to. Uh, so very important. Yep. I mean, there, there are a lot of portions of the college app or some portions of the college applications that are absolutely parents hands off, but that's not one of them. That's one of the ones that they need to be involved in. Josephine, what were you going to say? I, I cut you off. I was going to say that parents need to also learn about college costs because I think a lot of parents are like, oh, we'll make it happen no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't really know what's going to happen to them. So if you are listening to this, um, I urge you to check out our podcast episodes in about a month, uh, second half of September, we're going to have two episodes on financial aid, really, really important because October 1st, um, the FAFSA opens and you also fill out the CSS profile. So that's really important. Um, so check out our podcast episodes that are coming end of September or mid September. Um, because once, you as a parent really understand all the moving parts and what does it mean to get, you know, gift aid, aid you don't have to pay back versus what do loans actually mean for your family and what do they look like? Um, understanding the idea of net price um, versus sticker price and whether or not you might be able to get your net price of the college, what you actually will be paying down. It really depends on your income and your assets. So I urge you to go to FAFSA forecast or maybe you can pop that in the chat. Lily, uh, FAFSA, yep. Forecaster, um, 
is um, a place where you can put in your financial information, already figure out what your EFC score, um, your estimated family contribution might be. And that can help you figure out whether or not you might be able to qualify for um, need-based aid, which is separate from merit aid, which is merit aid would be based not on your finances, but on the student's um, academic rigor, uh, grades, and potentially test prep score, uh, test SAT, ACT scores. So I think that's really important because a lot of times once parents find all this stuff out, they're like, oh, wow, I do want to have a conversation with my child. And also, you know, you don't have to tell your child what you make. It's not necessary to have this conversation. Um, It's more important that you really think about it as a parent. What can I afford per year? And you can share that number with your child. What can I afford? And which universities can we bring down to that price? Like, where do we feel like, um, you know, you might be getting good scholarships? And most of the scholarships, like especially the big ones, they come straight from the university. So if your family is in a place where you do need to get it down to 30K, right, from an 80K school, um, you may want to make sure that you're applying to universities that um, offer big merit scholarships in case you don't you know, qualify for financial need, which a lot of middle-class families might just make just enough money not to qualify, but not enough money to actually be able to pay for it. Um, And so um, making sure that you are in the upper 25th percentile and the top 25% of applicants when it comes to GPA and test scores, that can really help you um, gain access to these merit scholarships. Um, Another thing is to look at Western Undergraduate Exchange Universities, WUE, WUE, Weird word, fun to say, right? Wooey. Um, I love, I love, I love saying that. And everyone always thinks I'm crazy, but it's a real thing. It's called wooey. Um, that's great for students who live in the Western states of the US. Um, and then also, um, also I lost my train of thought. So those are the two options that we're gonna go with here. <laughs> but really having that conversation about what you can pay per year. I think that's more important if you want to avoid having the conversation of what you actually make as a parent. We've covered a lot of- I remembered, I remembered. Um, So the other thing is do what Melinda did. Do you want to go to this expensive school? You know, maybe you can do your first year or your first two years at community college because then the overarching cost of your college education is reduced drastically because you're only paying full tuition for two or three years instead of for four whole years. So that's the other great way to have this conversation. Heck yeah. (laughs) Definitely. I got it back. Yes. Yay. (laughs) Um. We've covered a lot of topics in uh, this webinar so far, things that, that parents should should be doing. Um, in terms of the moving parts of a college application, what parts should parents absolutely be hands off of? Beep. I rang it first. <laughs> hey. Yep. I agree. <laughs> I second that as well. Because the essay is basically, it's the interview part. Colleges can't interview every applicant. And so this is the uh, opportunity for your student to show who they truly are, what their values, what their passions are, and if they're a good fit. And you want to keep out of that as a parent because you want the student's true being and hobbies and passion to show through. And hey, if the university doesn't see it as a fit, then it's then it's probably not ideal that your student gets in there in the first place. So you yeah. want it to be their true essence coming forth in the essay. Awesome. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Yep. 
And some <laughs> students want to write about something that they don't want their parents to see. So respect it. It's mm -hmm. kind of like writing in your journal. Yep. Mine certainly was. I wrote about my dad and it took me, <laughs> it took me like six months to be like, okay, I guess you can read it. It's fine. I'm, I turned, it's already been submitted. It's not that emotional anymore. So yeah, definitely respecting that boundary. <laughs> I got to help you with that essay. I remember that was pretty awesome. For those of you who don't know, Lily was my college counseling student a few years back. And I got to fight really hard to get her to write about herself more than about her father, who is an awesome human, <laughs> I would like to say. And I learned a lot about him. But man, that essay changed yeah. a lot over the different drafts. <laughs> yes, it was definitely it was like it was his college application uh, at the uh, beginning. And eventually and, and, it got to be mine. And he definitely would have gotten in if, if you were applying for culinary school. <laughs> and I still would like to be invited for dinner because that essay really made me crave all the, all the wonderful, amazing yeah. food that your father seems to craft on the daily. So I was very impressed. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing to broadcast to the world. We don't have enough, <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> enough, <laughs> enough ways to have everyone over for dinner. So, so the address this, is... Sorry. No. <laughs> I'm just going to leave the Zoom call right now. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. That uh, wraps almost wraps up uh, what I have to bring to this webinar. We just have a couple of minutes left. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any closing um, thoughts before I move on to some little closing business? I have a big one. We are talking a lot about communication being really important. We're talking a lot about asking your child why and how being really important. I kind of heard myself say that like 50 times in the last hour, I think. Um, <laughs> so let me put a little, like, let me add a little caveat to that. Um, yes, you want to ask. Yes, you want to talk about these things. Yes, you want to communicate, but don't do it all the time. Have yes. a designated time for when you are going to talk about college. Students get super stressed out and stop answering questions and don't want to talk about things if they are constantly asked. So what, what do you think you're going to major in? Where do you think you want to go? How far along mm -hmm. are you in your college applications? Oh, did you finish your resume yet? Blah, blah, blah. They don't just get this from the parents. You know, it's usually other people, like parents, friends. Well, immediately, as soon as you're a junior, they're like, so college. And mm -hmm. the juniors are like, like, I don't even know yet. Why are you asking me to tell you about this? It's yeah. very nerve wracking. Everyone's asking you. And then your friends start knowing what they want to do and where they want to go. Maybe you don't know yet. It's just like asking a newlywed couple, so are you trying for babies yet? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, uh, stressful. Why would I tell you? Yeah, I know. So, yeah. you know, it's not just the parents, it's the whole world kind of coming down, asking these questions of these students. So having a college-free zone or having college-free evenings or dinners, I think is a really good suggestion. Um, and then having a college-designated zone, maybe every Sunday around noon, you sit down as a family, and parents get to ask the questions they have. Students get to relay their progress and they get to ask their parents for advice. Um, and, and that's that, you know, and then, you know, you can table it till then. I think that's really important. Creating those boundaries. Not everything needs to be about college. I agree. As Very a student, true. I agree. <laughs> Excellent advice. Very well put. I believe that's it for me. Thank you guys for being here so much. Happy to be here. This was awesome. awesome. Thanks for listening. As we continue to produce episodes of this podcast, you can follow along on our website, www.strivetolearn.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes, and don't forget to subscribe. 
As we're launching this podcast, we'd appreciate any support you can give, including likes, downloads, shares, and good reviews. Got something you want to learn about? Ask us questions in the comments or DM us on Instagram at Strive to Learn Tutoring. Get the latest updates in the college admissions world and be the first to receive exclusive offers when you subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, www.strivetolearn.com. Thanks for sticking around, and I'll see you next time.